Good morning, KGF Church family. My name is Michelle Friedman. I'm the lead administrator here, and um, I've brought you into the admin office this morning. I just want to let you know about our upcoming AGM. It's virtual this year. It starts Thursday, November 19th, and uh, goes for several days. It will be open. You'll get details about that on the 19th when it opens, but we just want to let you know also on Saturday the 21st from 9 to 10, we'll have an in-person Q&A. For those of you that aren't comfortable with the virtual version, there'll be um, some pastors and some of the board members to answer questions for you. We just need to um, know if you're coming, so if you'd like to come, we just need to keep our numbers small. Please email office at kgfchurch.com and just let us know that you'd like to come uh, on Saturday the 21st from 9 to 10. We'll also be shortly an, um, announcing some new members and sharing some new baptisms also, so look for that in the next few weeks. Finally, we just want to thank you for being a generous people. We want to thank you for um, praying for us here, for the staff. Um, there's still nine of us here on staff at KGF Church, and we think of you often. Uh, we miss so many of you. We miss seeing your faces, and we know that that's uh, hard for you also. Um, yeah, there's just like a season of weariness right now, and uh, as the year comes to close, some of the staff are feeling that too. Last week and this week, we have some people taking vacations here. Uh, there's nowhere to go, but uh, people need a break. So we just ask that you'd be in prayer for some of the staff as they just feel the um, feel how long this year has been, and we know that you guys feel that too. Just know that when we meet, uh, we have an all-staff meeting on Tuesdays. We are in prayer for our church community. Uh, we, we know you and we love you, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Have a great morning. Well, church, it's uh, exciting for us this morning to be able to be here with Howard Davidson, Howard's a, a KGFer and serves in our community as a medical doctor. Interesting times to be a doctor, Howard, I'm sure. Is that how it's feeling? Or are you feeling overwhelmed? Or I'm not feeling overwhelmed, but it sure is interesting times. Yeah. yeah. Or you, if you go rock climbing enough, it takes care of everything. Is that how it works? You have other priorities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, I, well, you know just so grateful for you and others in the medical profession who are serving these days. Uh, obviously, we're even more aware of how important you all are. But I wanted to ask, like, you know, maybe real quickly, how did you become a doctor? What was the call to that? How did this become your vocation? I uh, knew I wanted to be a doctor from a very young age, and I don't know why or how. I don't come from a family of professionals, but from about the age of five or six and there onwards, I I knew that I wanted to be a doctor, so I'm not sure why. And yet here you are. Here I am. In the middle of a pandemic. In the middle of a pandemic. Having to be a doctor, serving people in this city. and uh, So one of the questions I have is, what's it like? So this is going to sound like really silly maybe, but what's it like to live every day uh, serving people's problems, S serving what sickness and really often dealing with people's disappointments. What's, what's that like? Um, I actually consider it a real privilege. Um, 
you know, a lot of the time in medicine, you, you may not be able to fix, uh, fix problems, um, but it's a privilege as a family doctor in particular, in this particular discipline, just to be able to walk alongside people. And, um, you know, I have a lot of people that I look after that I've been looking after for two decades now. And so, sure, sometimes they present with problems that I can't fix, um, but I can walk alongside them um, and I can be their comforter. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, but a lot of the time there's a lot I can do to help them mm -hmm. and improve their quality of life. But um, whether I can fix the problem or not isn't always that important. It's um, in in your in your profession and in your calling, you know you're you're dealing with an, in our in our theme this morning in our service we're talking about the encompassing of, of impacts of sin in the world and that it's a big deal and you're dealing with the outcome of that and the fruit and the brokenness of things all the time. What what keeps you going? What keeps you going serving that kind of story that sometimes you can't fix, sometimes you can make a difference, but what's you know, um, I'm a bit of a Lord of the Rings junkie, and um, there's a scene you in... you got a bit of a Gandalf thing going on. I've got on, a bit of a so Gandalf thing. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so in, uh, in, one of the, in one of the scenes in the movie, uh, Gandalf is talking to uh, Frodo, and he's uh, suggesting that um, um, we need to be wise with the time and how we use the time that we have available to us. Hmm. And so very often, sure, for all of us, ultimately, we know at some stage we're going to die, for example. I mean, the ultimate repercussions of sin is death. But, you, kn you know, as a doctor, I can often walk alongside people and help them so that they have the best quality of life for the time that they have available, whatever that looks like. Mm. Um, and encourage them to read, not just be healthy physically, but to, uh, to try and live a life as... as um, as satisfactory and fulfilling as possible on all in all domains, hmm. um, uh, and I think that's something that I value personally, and it's something it's a real privilege to be able to encourage people to think about and maybe follow in their in their own lives. What do, what does as a as a person of faith, you're a follower of Jesus. What does uh, you know? What does that do for you as you approach people's brokenness? Like, how, do, how does it, has it changed? Does it change the way you see people um, and your interaction with them and the disappointing stuff that they might be going through? It does, because I think the difference between uh, being a mediocre doctor and a good one is not how much you know, how clever you are, it's really whether you care. Hmm. Uh, I think that does make a big difference. Um, and... Um, and we call to love people and um, when you have a healthy and a, a godly understanding of what love actually looks like you can really um, provide maybe um, a holistic approach to people and the difficulties and challenges they may be facing because you have a unique perspective I've got pretty clear boundaries as to as to how I do that um, I, I would never take advantage of somebody who's and sort of push my faith in them because they're in a down and out situation and inappropriately use as a context for sharing mm -hmm, my faith. Mm -hmm. But the values that are important to me as a result of my faith, I think are projected in the way that I, mm. I deal with people. Um, what, what do you, uh, like when you think of, like you mentioned, you've mentioned the word holistic, wholeness, right? Like people are whole. So sometimes those of us who are uh, not in the medical profession think, well, you know, you you prescribe medication and you 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 know set up specialist appointment and you know help us make those connections for to get well. But 
when you talk about that wholeness, what, what do you observe and have learned is necessary for people's like wellness in the full sense of what that means? I mean, as a family doctor, you have a unique perspective because people don't just come to you purely with inverted commas medical problems. They sometimes come with other issues that are really related to maybe um, choices that they've made and there have been repercussions and they are mm. now experiencing those. So it's an opportunity to maybe share some values and to encourage people to think about things sometimes differently or sometimes to have a different perspective or maybe to provide them with advice as to where they could get the appropriate help um, for that particular problem. So in terms of holistic care, you, you're not just dealing with simple medical problems, you're dealing with the person as a, as a physical, spiritual, social, psychosexual being. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so you often have to deal with things for which there's no clear answer but for which you can provide a unique perspective and maybe direct them to think maybe in a different way or maybe to seek help for that particular problem in, in an appropriate uh, place. Mm -hmm. um, hmm. So I in that sense, it's really holistic. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just thank you for sharing this and being willing to, to do that. You know, from five years old, you've been headed in this direction and you're just barely over five now, I think. So for a few for a few years, you've been living into this. Thanks for thanks for serving, and it just reminds me, you know, all of us. It should remind us that we each have a part to play in being a part of God's wholeness in the world. We're all, in some ways, responding to the brokenness of sin and its impact in the world, and we all have different callings to live that out as people who are followers of Jesus. So wherever that finds you. May the Lord bless you and use you in that for his glory. And same to you, Howard. Thank you. The Lord bless you. Thank you. I'm reading Luke 4 from verse 14 to verse 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, church family, uh, may I encourage us toward one thing just before we dive into the word together this morning. Uh, as we head toward the end of the year, can I invite you to continued generosity? We'd love to be able to be a continued blessing to our city and uh, to continue our ministry. So keep partnering and financially together as a community that we would be generous and serve our city and serve the Lord well together. Um, kids, today, here's, here's my little challenge to you. Hopefully you have some Play-Doh or some tinfoil. You can make little people out of tinfoil too, because that's what you're going to do. You're going to make some people. I want you to take that tinfoil or that Play-Doh and craft a person. Make what you believe is the most amazing person ever. You can make them big, make them small. Use your creativity. 
And uh, we're headed toward a question, as always. Our question today is going to be, how would I apply God's good news to the guilt, shame, and fear that have power in my life and society? How would I apply God's good news to the guilt, shame, and fear that have power in my life and society? That's where we're headed. That's a pretty loaded question, isn't it? But that's where we're headed today as we continue on with the story of God's good news. I want to tell you a story of my first real summer job in my small town grocery store. One night I was working the late night shift. Things were slow and I had to go to the bathroom. So I grabbed a magazine and disappeared to the basement where the bathroom was. And suddenly the bell rang and there was always a bell that the checkout cashiers used to hail we minions and we would run to help bag groceries and and deliver people's groceries out to their vehicle. But uh, I heard this bell, but I was downstairs, and I just ignored it. And when I came back upstairs, I simply told my coworkers that, hey, I had been doing a job downstairs, I didn't hear the bell. Which, of course, I could convince myself was at least partially true. Well, the next day, my boss pulled me into his office and asked me not to be so negligent in the future, because there had been complaints about me. Uh, I said, of course, of course, I was very sincere, of course I would not do that again. Uh, Now you have to understand, I didn't know Jesus at that point in my life. I didn't have the language or understanding yet of what I now would describe, but my actions revealed something dark. There was something that controlled me. But it's not just that I had lied because I felt guilty for being a crappy employee. An, An even deeper reason for my deception was shame. Because you remember that magazine? Yeah, it wasn't Sports Illustrated or National Geographic or even Archie and Jughead. It was pornographic. The real need to cover up was because I was being sucked into a deep hole of twisted intimacy. As a young man, I was finding this increasingly difficult to face, and I was powerless to pull out of it. I was a good worker who had had a bad night in the sight of my boss, but I was really actually a lost soul internally having a lot of bad days because a power controlled me. Now, which, let me ask you, was my greatest problem as a teenager in that day? Was it that I lied? Was it that I neglected my responsibilities? Was it that I felt drawn to magazines that were not good for me? Or was it that there was a power controlling me that would make an otherwise decent young man do all these things under pressure? Houston, we have a problem. Now, perhaps you recognize that famous quote. It's from the 1995 movie Apollo 13. It's Tom Hanks playing NASA astronaut Jack Swigert during the very real space journey of Apollo 13 in April 1970. And the words followed followed the Apollo crew hearing a bang and realizing that something was wrong and that NASA ground control in Houston, Texas needed to be informed. Now you still hear that quote sometimes, Houston, we have a problem. However, uh, there's a deep irony in the quote itself because the quote is inaccurate. The real quote is, Houston, we've had a problem. 
Mere semantics? No big deal? Maybe it's just entertainment and, and it's only an issue of grammar after all. But why change the quote in the first place? A few astronauts drifting in space is tense enough, don't you think? I mean, really, the quote was changed because the real conversation, and this is true, the real conversation that is recorded and you can listen to it, the real conversation was too understated for entertainment. It didn't have enough zing. Screenwriter William Broyles Jr., who transformed that real adventure of Apollo 13 into the movie, purposefully changed the quote because the original wasn't as dramatic. In short, reality didn't work well in a suspense film. We're so used to this, you see. We're so used to this that we don't even think about how deep the irony goes here. In the name of entertainment, we twist the truth and the entertainment becomes the reality we begin to quote as truth. So think about it. Entertainment's power of selling a story is more important than the truth. What is the power that controls teenagers in basements and executives in their offices? Houston, we have and we've had a problem. Now, the Bible begins with God as creator and blesser of shalom and we human beings made in his image to represent God in the world. The vision of shalom, that wholeness and completeness that Pastor Garth unpacked so well last week is uh, God's heart, it's who he is. But we need to understand the depth of the problem of sin, how deep we are broken, that Genesis chapter 3 and on in the scriptures describe. Now kids, you're still making that little person, right? How's that coming? Because we're made in God's image and you're kind of actually creating a person right now and in the image of what you would picture them to be. But we who are made in God's image are so deeply broken by sin. And it's not just that we have a dislocation that can be snapped back into place like Lego. And we all know that it's not that simplistic. It's more like we have a disease that is terminal. Like my mother's progressive supranuclear palsy that took her life. Or ALS that you might know somebody having. There is a reality a power that we can manage for a while, but that power has completely changed us and will take us. So sin, which began in our suspicion of the good news of the creator, has robbed us of God's shalom. And Garth quoted Randy Woodley last week, who wrote, sin can be defined as the absence of shalom. Sin has created a problem wrecked us and we need to come to terms with this bad news more fully so that we can really truly hear and hopefully believe the good news. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 is a wonderful uh, little verse and here's what it says. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, the devil's work. Now, that's a pretty interesting verse. John, the disciple of Jesus, separates two realities here. 
our practice of sinning, our acting out of that which does not reflect the will, righteousness, and truth, and goodness of God is a very real and deep problem. For, he says, it actually makes us of the devil. Now, we may, we may be really nice people. You're all really nice people. But when we sin, we're acting like the devil. Have you ever thought of that? Because sinning is the devil's business. It was never meant to be our business. We weren't created for that. Secondly, what John's pointing out here is that God's solution to our problem of sinning is not to get us to behave better. It is to destroy, it is to destroy the works of the devil. We will not be free from sin merely by acting or thinking or protesting better. In fact, we may simply sin more darkly as a result. We will be free from sin only if the works of the devil are destroyed. Wow. So, what are the works of the devil? Back in Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the fruit is, of this fruit of sin is understood. The serpent twists the truth and seeds suspicion of God. The devil's work is to put us under the power of pride and self-sufficiency, to twist what is true into a different reality to, altogether, to destroy shalom, the wholeness of what is God's best. The devil's deception is the lie that we will become like God ourselves, in control, in charge of our destiny. Now, kids, you've been creating something special, a little person made in your image. Now, have someone in your hub right now or whoever you're with, with your family, have somebody take a picture of it real quick. Go ahead. I'll sit here for a minute while you, or for a few seconds while you do it. Take a picture. Okay, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to give that little person that you've made out of Play-Doh or tinfoil to someone else. Okay, is it in their hand yet? Give it to them. And now that someone else, I want you to take it and twist it. Just twist it. Just twist it. Come on, kids, let them do it. I know it's hard to watch that happen. That's so painful. There it goes. This, you see is the big deal about the works of the devil. It puts us into the hands of another and twists us up. We literally become that which we were not created to be. In fact, instead of becoming free, we have become slaves to sin. Our twistedness now is us. What we were to rule over begins to rule us. Instead of acting out the shalom righteousness of God, we begin to seek what is good for ourselves, what feels good to us, what is good only for people like us. We begin to practice sinning. We come under the power and the works of the devil, and we are slaves to the enslaving power. And this power, we are actually powerless against. It must be destroyed if we are to be set free from the big deal of sin. And Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, that if we commit sin, we are slaves to sin. And that pretty much means all of us. Houston, we've had a problem. We still have it. 
But in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, uh, who, who, who has already said at the beginning of, uh, in Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of his message, and thank you, Matthias Kresnici, for reading for us this morning from Luke chapter 4. Jesus has said, the spirit of the Lord is upon him to set the captives free. In Matthew 20, Jesus responds to his disciples who are arguing about who will get the positions of power in Jesus' kingdom. They're revealing the very, in very human ways that they are bound by a power. And Jesus says to them in verse, uh, verses 26 and 20 to 28 of Matthew 20, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and listen to this, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has come to flip the assumed order of things on its head. True power will come through servanthood and not through serving the power of sin that seeks pride and place. And Jesus had come to give his life as a ransom to set us free from the enslaving powers that are the works of the devil, a battle we simply cannot win. We are slaves in need of ransom. So big people, if you've twisted that kid's little, little, little creation, could you give it back to them? Just say, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Now, kids, you rebuild that person, okay? Rebuild them. Now, listen, as the church grew into the first century world of the, of the Roman Empire and moved out from the spiritual and the ethical framework of Judaism, believers began to notice something that had always been there. It had always been there even within Israel, but was experienced with like full frontal humanity in the Gentile world, which most of us listening to this are actually Gentiles. And so we've been shaped by this in more ways than we're aware often. And so the first Christians were now awake by the Spirit. They're under the lordship of Jesus. And they, uh, powerless and small though they be, there weren't many of them. They had no political, no social power. They noticed that people were controlled by addictive powers. And they recognized four of them. Powers that were systematized, institutionalized, built into society and experienced in some form by every person. And a summary of this is captured actually in Revelation chapter 9. In Revelation chapter 9 verses 20 and 21. Now just to set this up, uh, up in the, at, at this point in Revelation... In chapter 6, there are six angels who have blown their trumpets and destruction comes upon sinful and broken humanity that is under the power and the participating works of the devil. It's a vision of woe and destruction in Revelation chapter 9. But then comes this, Revelation 9, verse 20 to 21. Pay attention. The rest of Mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Now look at, look at this last verse. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Now, notice something in those verses first god is offering the good news of repentance 
a change of mind and heart. He wants us to head west, away from what is destroying us, and he wants us to believe in him. This is God's heart. He's desiring repentance. Notice also what has enslaved us, and it is described twisted worship and spirituality, the worshiping of demons and things that have been created and sorceries, murder, sexual immorality, theft. Now, come with me over here to this, uh, again, my attempt at some wonderful artwork. I do my best. If you can draw it better than I can, please do and send me a picture. Uh, Historian, church historian Alan Alan Kreider's research reveals that the first Christians realized that if the good news was to take root in a bad news world, then these four addictive powers, these controlling powers, needed to be addressed in the lives of people. These powers were real, and they showed up again and again, and they were enslaving, and they were destructive. Sin oozes out of out four great addictions that Kreider describes in these ways. And this is captured, it's summarized actually in that passage in Revelation 9. There's xenophobic violence. That's a big word. Kids, I don't know if you know what that means. As adults, we might not know what it means. Xenophobic violence is essentially uh, a turning on those who are not like me. People of other ethnicities, other nations, other languages, other groups, people that aren't like me, I am ready to do something against. There is sexual adventure. This was another thing noticed in the first couple centuries of the church. Twisted intimacy, infidelity, sexuality that was not as God intended and had been turned into a God. Occult practice. That's seeking the divine through superstition, through those magic arts, through idolatry, without God's revelation. Seeking the spiritual, but without God. This occult practice. And then... There was rampant materialism, the seeking ultimate meaning and identity in things, in worshiping stuff. Now, can I ask you, okay, just pause, because if you look at that, you realize, hmm, maybe things haven't changed, right? Which one of these are you more likely to be enslaved by? Which one of those are you most likely to be enslaved by? Your practice of sinning is connected to these addictive powers. And this is bad news. And in the Gospels, Jesus is routinely encountering these enslaving and addictive powers. Remember he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and he has been sent to bring liberty to the captives. Well, what were they captive to? These powers. He's constantly interacting with them. Xenophobic violence. The story of the Good Samaritan is actually an encounter with xenophobic violence. Uh, There's sexual adventure. He's coming up against a woman who's caught in adultery. He's teaching about adultery. His emphasis on the sacredness of God's intention for marriage. He's addressing the issue. There's occult practice. He's constantly interacting with the Jewish leaders who will will make uh, legalism the path to knowing God. Or he's constantly interacting with the demonic who know who he is even when people don't. And then he's constantly interacting with rampant materialism. Do you know Jesus talks about money and greed a ton? He's got great stories like his interaction with Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler, all focused on a confrontation with 
this power. This is what Jesus came to do. Whenever Jesus confronts these powers, there is an invitation to freedom from these powers in him. His entire mission on earth in the power of the Spirit is to set people free, to restore God's shalom. And sin, you see, is a big deal because it enslaves us. One of these four, and perhaps more than one, will have enslaved you. You will find yourself wanting freedom because deep down you know this is not the shalom life. It's not what you actually want. But you will be unable to, and you may even simply, you'll be unable to set yourself free from it, and you may even have simply accepted it as part of you. Xenophobic violence gets passed on from generation to generation. It's the Hatfields and the McCoys. It's pick the people groups, and it gets passed from generation to generation. We don't trust those people. And it's not only individual. It can be systematized and institutionalized, like the residential school system in Canada was institutionalized xenophobic violence. That's what that was. Or some trends in culture that become encultured rampant materialism. I must have that thing. My identity is tied up in having that thing. Do you see? The big deal of sin affects our relationship with God, our inner peace, and our relating to the world. But our sinful activity produces troubling fruit beyond this. Because these powers that enslave us produce something else. And I'm going to write the words here. So hopefully you can, you can see them. I'll turn my back to you for just a second. The fruit of these activities are guilt, shame, and fear. Or shame, guilt, and fear, as I put them in order here. And this shows up in the Garden of Eden way back in Genesis chapter 3. It's the immediate sense of guilt that happens when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and disobey God. They've lost their innocence, they've transgressed God's command, and suddenly guilt is part of the human story. Shame comes flooding in. They cover themselves with fig leaves. Fear is suddenly present. When God looks for Adam, Adam says, I hid because I was afraid in Genesis 3 verse 10. Which of these shame, guilt, fear. Which of these do you carry and do you wear? Hmm? Which one of these formed the culture you grew up in? Because not only do these things show up sometimes from generation to generation, but these actually become encultured in how we've been raised, depending on our people group. Which dominated the behave because conversations. Behave because the fear of what might happen to you. Or because you'll be guilty if you do that. Or you will shame the family. Behave because. Which of these is your go-to internal battle? Is it guilt? I made a mistake. I made a mistake. And there's a rotten fruit that's produced from that. It's law-keeping and judging. 
must behave better because I feel guilty. So there's got to be a law I can follow and I start judging those who don't act like I do. And there's a soul cry that emerges out of guilt and that is, I need a new beginning. I need forgiveness. Or is it shame? That is your story. I, not that I made a mistake, I am a mistake. And that produces rotten fruit of self-loathing and demanding that others feed me, feed me, feed my identity because I'm a mistake. The soul cry of that is, I need a new identity. I need restoration. And then maybe you are actually more the fear person, which is I must manipulate to avoid mistakes. I must manipulate things in order to avoid mistakes. And there's a rotten fruit of that as well, which is superstition and suspicion of everything going on around me. And there's a soul cry in that too, which is I need a new power. I need deliverance. It even produces the culture's that are built around us. We were shaped by a way people handled these four addictive powers. And it shows up in guilt, in shame, and in fear. You have been conditioned to handle sin, the absence of shalom, but all this is only sin management. It is not a solution. But what if the guilt, shame, and the fear that you know you are is that you know is actually your soul crying out for shalom? What if you saw them as they actually can be as holy triggers, reminding you not of past trauma, but of a past image of God that has been lost and is requiring a ransom? The real bad news about sin isn't that I am guilty of making a mistake or feel shame or live fearfully. The big deal about sin is not even simply that I practice sinning. The real bad news is that I am unable to rescue myself from any of these. The four addictive powers, they enslave us and they twist us like Play-Doh. And this slavery of sin gets normalized and institutionalized and communalized and ritualized in guilt, shame, and fear. And this ultimately produces hopelessness, meaninglessness, purposelessness, a void, and the cry of Ecclesiastes, which is, it's all vain, it's all meaningless. Human beings, you who are meant to live in and be participants in the shalom of God are going to need more than better laws, more accepting communities or better rituals or secrets unlocked to overcome this. We need a power to overcome the power of sin. Sin needs to be defeated, disarmed, and sent packing back to hell from which it came. Who of us is powerful enough to do this. Who can set us free from this body of death? Asked Paul in Romans chapter 7. Our only hope, our only good news is if God himself defeats it. And that leads us to this great quote from uh, Chris Wright in his wonderful book, The Mission of God. The fact is that sin and evil constitute bad news in every area of life on this planet. 
The redemptive work of God through the cross of Christ is good news for every area of life on earth that has been touched by sin, which means every area of life. Bluntly, we need a holistic gospel because the world is in a holistic mess. And by God's incredible grace, we have a gospel big enough to redeem all that sin and evil has touched. Jesus has come to give us life as a ransom, to destroy the works of the devil, and to set humanity free. And until we recognize the big deal about sin and its impact, we won't understand the full individual, corporate, and systemic powers that it holds over us. And we won't truly understand and have our eyes open to what Jesus meant when he said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So friends, I don't know what's stirred in your heart in this time that we've had together today. And man, there's so much more we could unpack about this, but wow. Are you living with shame, guilt, and fear? Maybe sit where you are, stand where you are, hold your hands open. Is it shame, guilt, or fear that dominates you? Which one of those four addictive powers are you enslaved to? Sin is a big deal. It's bigger than we think. But there is a gospel big enough to deal with this problem. The power of sin has been eradicated in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's gone to the cross. Death is defeated. The power of sin obliterated. And you are welcomed in to this new space, this shalom, where you're set free by the one who said, the power of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach and bring good news to the poor, the liberty to the captives. This is, might be you. Whatever it is today, would you reach out to him would you acknowledge your sin? If the Spirit is prompting you to confession, that's not bad news, that's good news. If your shame, guilt, and fear has awakened a cry of shalom in your heart, that's not bad news, that's good news. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to set us free, to set captives free, and we are captives. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that you love us and you have a plan for us. Thank you that you have a plan for communities and neighborhoods and cities. And it's not to be ruled by these powers. It's to be set free that we may bring the shalom, the kingdom of God to earth just as it is in heaven. Lead us forward in this until you come again and restore all things. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, as you go today, as always, we're turning you to work with each other, to be the church. This isn't just information. This is for application. And so here's our question for today. Again, how would I apply God's good news to the guilt, shame, and fear that have power in my life and society? How would I apply God's good news to the guilt, shame, and fear that have power in my life and society? That's a huge question. Wrestle with it, pray into it, and act as God's good news people in the world this week. The Lord bless and keep you. He's gone ahead of you, and he's behind you, he's beside you, he's within you to make you able for all things.
God bless.